0: Alright, so uh, welcome everybody. Uh, Today I am super thrilled to have back for the fifth time Dr. Eric Helms. So, hey Eric, and how much volume should we do in the gym? Just kidding. (laughs) Dude, fifth time. This is awesome. I'm so glad to be back on again, man. Yeah. And uh, in all seriousness, I'm really privileged uh, to have the chance to talk to you for this many times. And you're one of those people. And um, this might sound a bit creepy, who, uh, even though I never met you in person, Eric, I very much view you as an informal mentor of mine, since your work just had a really big impact on my thinking. And, you know, guys, Eric is someone who, even though he gets asked the same questions a lot, he never fails to offer something new and insightful in his responses that can make you think and rethink a lot of things. He's always so calm and thoughtful in his responses, and I'm sure that this podcast will offer some great value to many of you guys. And uh, today, I have a really cool topic that I want to talk about with you, Eric, which is the emotional and psychological cost of (laughs) macro-tracking, but where I want to start is actually not on that topic, but rather uh, one thing that you get asked about quite frequently, which is sort of on the topic of productivity. So, you know, every once in a while, I listen to a podcast and I come across some golden nugget that just makes me pause and rethink things. And I heard a quote from you, which I'm actually going to read here verbatim because I thought it was a really strong point. Uh, So you said... You have to be incredibly busy to physically not have the hours in the day to get what you need done. What more often happens Mm -hmm. is that you're so drained that you don't have the energy to utilize the time that you have effectively to get what you need done. So, like I said, I think this was just a really powerful point that you made here. So, would you care to elaborate on this point a little bit?
1: Yeah, man. And uh, before I do that, I want to say we need to rectify that whole we haven't met in person thing. And none of what you said is creepy. I felt honored. Um, so awesome. Thank you. Uh, yeah. So to address that quote, you know, I, I was thinking about while you while you read it back, I was finding that I agreed with myself, which is good. That means I haven't you know totally changed my mind or I wasn't smoking crack that day on that podcast. But um, I was reflecting back to when I did my my first masters in the states. And that was when I was probably the most physically busy I've ever been, um, because I was attempting to save enough money to actually get out here to New Zealand to do the rest of my graduate work. And I was a full-time student finishing my master's. Um, I was in the middle of my 2011 contest prep. I was doing extra work to save money, like I mentioned. So I was teaching 30 hours a week at a personal training college. And I was also a full-time 3DMJ coach and I had, I think, somewhere between uh, 30 and 40 clients and that many reports per week that I had to respond to. Um, And I was busy to the point where I was using my cardio as my time to study for my master's. So I had, I would choose my, what cardio I'd do in the gym based on what could hold my textbooks so I could uh, read the chapters I needed to read. Um, And uh, I Basically, my free time consisted of uh, going to the gym to train, which I did for about eight hours a week, Um, and then, uh, which I guess is not free time (laughs) for for, for competitive bodybuilding. That's not really free time, but uh, that's that's some of my time was spent doing that, Um, and the rest of my time was spent hanging out with my wife for the most part, uh, and just trying to keep my my relationship alive. And we would basically get two to three hours uh, per night of watching, uh, you know, Netflix and eating dinner. And that was pretty much my only social life. Um, it was also fortunate that she competed in 2011 as well. Uh, she was dieting down to a lower weight class for powerlifting. And she also, while she was down there, because she got pretty damn lean, decided to do uh, her probably one and only figure show she'll ever do. Um, so we were able to do cardio together, train together, uh, and then have those probably two hours a night where we were... Uh, you know, watching watching Netflix, and I was eating a huge salad, and she was also eating some real, similar diet food, <laughs> but um, but there was nothing else left. And um, even then, I, I was able to have that relaxation time, have that social bonding, um, and and get to the gym also, which I think I think is pretty important because I think a lot of people. Um, that, that's where this comes up in the topic of fitness is whether or not they have time to get to the gym or have time to do these things. Um, but I, I had to be very careful really to manage my energy. Um, and it was very, very low that whole time. To, and I didn't have the time anyway. But even then, I had leisure time. I had time to connect. And I had time to get done a lot of uh, different productive things. So I think that gave me a lot of perspective. And um, and getting through my, my PhD uh, here in New Zealand, I, I definitely had time to do other things. It was just, I was so burnt out. And I think that's, that's what really what people mean when they say that they, they just can't fit anymore. And that's probably a good thing. Obviously you don't want to go past that, that point. Um, but uh, I think it, it's more pertinent to focus on managing your emotions and your energy than it is your specific uh, time in most cases.
0: Yeah. And, and I'm always, like, I obviously reading about productivity from actual, like, productivity coaches and authors that are writing about this topic is interesting. But I'm always more intrigued hearing about this from people who are not actually in that niche, but they are just uh, applying these principles mm-hmm. for themselves. So I'm, I'm curious, like, um, obviously you get asked this a lot, like, how does a typical day in your life look like? But what I actually want to ask instead is, um, like, how many, what would you say, like, how many product, pr- productive hours or in a day, in your opinion, that you can actually, like, use with full efficiency? Like, if you look at your work day, like, obviously there are a lot of, like, chore things that you need to do. So, maybe that's a better way of uh, framing this question. Like, how many working hours are in your day? And out of those, how many are, are those that are really, like, cognitively demanding and you need to use
1: some of your creative juices and all of those things? That's a good question. So, I think it varies day to day a little bit based on whether I just went through like a period of, um, doing like deep work, like, like writing a lot. Um, and this is, it's a good timing. You're asking me this cause I just finished the second edition of the muscle and strength pyramids. Um, so I just spent a lot of time, um, you know, digging into research, reading it, getting updated information, thinking about, uh, the structure and the information in the first edition and then changing it and writing fully new chapters in some cases. Um, and I've been doing that since mid October. So basically a little over two months straight of, um, of writing. And I would say four to six hours is, is, is what I can put in consistently day-to-day as far as actually doing productive, deep thinking, uh, critical thinking, writing, and um, creative work. Um, however, I think there are different types of productivity and i think what i'm good at is being efficient with my time and knowing what i have the capacity for and what i don't have the capacity for so uh for example um a podcast for me is actually quite easy i'm an external thinker uh what i mean or external processors what some people say and, and i i kind of figure out things as i speak um me speaking to you out loud is kind of the same way i think in my head it comes naturally i'm extroverted um and of course when i go on podcasts i'm always talking about either things i know very well or myself so they're, they're not difficult questions to answer uh and it's conversations are, are pretty uh, easy for me to do so i think i give this impression that i'm always out there all the time everywhere uh, because i just say yes to most podcasts i'm i'm happy to do an interview and that that's a easy way for me to get good information out there consistently. And I do probably one to two a week um, on average. So that takes about, you know, hour, hour and a half of my time, uh, but very little energy. Uh, and I can start my day off like I am today at 8 a.m., do an hour, hour and a half long podcast, and then I just go right into my next my next uh, thing that I'm doing. Um, another category of work that is not very difficult is just uh, answering emails uh, which I have a fair amount of from my students, from my clients, and then just from people who have uh, questions, and then also just from things related to the businesses that I'm involved in. Uh, and unless they are an actual uh, student question that is pretty in-depth about their master's or PhD, or a, um, a client who's doing a report, those are also relatively easy uh, in my wheelhouse, and I can respond to them pretty quickly. Um, so I categorize different work differently, how long it's going to take, how much emotional investment uh, there is, um, you know, writing a, a program, for example, uh, I find is not very emotionally draining, but it is time consuming. Uh, and it's kind of just a logical framework and thinking about the needs of the client. Um, so though I, I think about all the different things I do. And how I would slot them in based on my current energy levels and the time I have available. And I think I'm basically really good at playing uh, time and emotional Tetris with my day. Um, like I won't start a, uh, if like I have, I have a new chapter to write for a book uh, that's going to require a ton of creative energy. But I have three hours. But let's say I just feel, um, you know, drained or just not up to it. Or just the, the idea of it just makes me have my gut sink. Like I'm not going to start that. I'll work on something else um, I will do something else. And, um, and sometimes if I'm just feeling like trashed in every, every which way possible, I know, okay, I pushed it too far in the last week. I'm not going to use this time I have to work. I'm going to do something, uh, that is, uh, recreational, that is, uh, recovering, that is purely just me having fun. Uh, and the only times I don't do that is when I'm pressed and have a deadline. And that's when you just have to basically redline it, push yourself past the, the comfortability point, and then you can deal with the consequences later. Um, but ideally, you don't get to that point in the first place because you manage your time and your energy um, more efficiently than that.
0: Yeah, and um, I'm actually – the figure you mentioned there, like four to six hours of deep uh, creative type work, that's that's actually like um, – for me, it's more like two to four. <laughs> and, and four is really pushing mm-hmm. it. So the fact that you're, for you, it's four to six, like um, it's really impressive, uh, even though it might sound low to somebody who hears, you know, like 10 to 12 hours of, you know, hustling a day or whatever – but I'm actually, like, many times when I'm hearing that, I would want to see how those 10 to 12 hours look like. Like, would you include things like, um, I don't know, like uh, answering emails into that? Or And I know, for example, editing a video, for example, can take really long and the time runs out really fast. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's awesome that you mm-hmm. offered that um, perspective. And... Um, with that uh next sort of rapid fire sort of stuff it doesn't necessarily have to be answered in a rapid fire way but um i just read an article from you not long ago which was about things that you changed your mind about and i think this is one of those things that can be the hardest for some someone who is a fitness professional and especially um you know a widely public figure in the within the community not just because of ego reasons of course that also plays into it but also because you know once people see you as a role model and and someone who is an authority figure like people start referencing you like you probably notice other people using your phrases on different you know platforms so for someone like you to come out and say that okay you know what i'm i was kind of wrong about that and i think differently now that must be something pretty challenging and within this article i picked out a couple of things and i just want to quickly run through them uh, as quickly as possible and as long as necessary, of course. So um, one of these things is uh, periodization. So uh, would you you just quickly outline like what you used to say about this and what you think about it now for hypertrophy, that is?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So I used to be a pretty big proponent of um, using periodization for the goal of hypertrophy um, and that I had, uh, I would say I had a bias towards periodization Um, and I think I'm trying to, to get to the roots of why I did. And I think it's because for so long I've seen um, haphazard or redundant or poorly organized training among bodybuilders. And, um, I think instead of just changing that, I looked at where other people in, in the fitness realm were, were doing things, quote unquote, right. Uh, like powerlifters, Olympic weightlifters, lifters in general, you know, S and C in the more academic sense, uh, strength and conditioning. And, um, They always have very well thought through, um, sometimes overly thought through training uh, and things that are well organized well in advance. So I thought, oh, that's how we should be doing it instead of just thinking, how how should we correct some of these problems? Um, so I got very interested in periodization, studied it, um, obviously as a competitive powerlifter. Um, I, I utilized it, uh, and I, I, trained many of my powerlifters with a periodized model of some type, um, and then getting involved with in Olympic weightlifting for a few years since like 2011. Um, I've also, you know, seen, seen it play out there, um. So I think it's easy to see when there's, there's a, an issue somewhere and then in a closely related field, there's a solution uh, to just jump right to that uh, instead of maybe thinking a little more creatively and a little more about the specific needs uh, of what, what is the problem you're seeing and how to correct that with a little more specificity. I think I just went right to, hey, we need to be taking these, these other concepts and applying them to, to bodybuilding. And obviously, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And I think it was very effective. But um, the more research that comes out and the better we understand what hypertrophy is, the, the less I think that you really need a periodized model or that it would be even optimal. I think you just need to make sure that there is uh, logical organization, specificity, uh, a way to, to ensure progression, um, and, uh, you know, training and appropriate rep ranges and more often making sure those rep ranges line up appropriately with which exercises you're doing. Uh, and then, uh, basically a providing an a, appropriate overload stimulus and recovery. Now, someone will listen, listen to what I just said and go, that sounds like a periodized plan, but it doesn't necessarily have to be, um, so most periodized plans, you will see a change in the, the number of sets or the number of reps performed and the manipulation of load and reps and sets in some way over time. So for example, a linear periodized model, uh, you might have uh, sets starting high and then getting lower or reps starting high and then getting lower while load goes up. It has this linearity to it in terms of volume decreasing over time and intensity going up. That probably doesn't make sense, at least in the long term for a bodybuilder who is um, You know, maintaining an appropriate level of volume is kind of one of those key variables for for hypertrophy. You might have high-intensity blocks, per se, uh, where you are, you know, pushing lower rep ranges. But the volume, as far as the number of sets, would probably be a little more similar. Um, You also don't necessarily need, like, an intensification. You don't really need a block periodized model either, although you can do it. Uh, if anything, you might have a daily undulating programming kind of approach where different days have different repetitions, but even then it's not necessary. You might have a spectrum of rep ranges on every day you train. For example, you might be doing 4 to 8 on squats, 8 to 12 on leg press, and then uh, you know 12 to 15 on a leg curl or something like that, uh, matching the, the exercise with the different rep ranges. Um, and we have no data to suggest that um, any, any uh, like a, a type of uh, periodization is, is better for for uh, for hypertrophy and when you think about it outside of the terms of kind of the way i used to which is periodization equals good you know which is kind of a simplistic way of looking at it um, if you think about it all right what what is required for hypertrophy we, we need Overload and then we need progression over time and then we need uh, to set things up and configure it in a way that allows recovery um, and you can achieve that without necessarily having uh, you know the tenants of, of periodization uh, where you could identify what type it was. Um, You know, you you can have all those different rep ranges. You you can have progression. I guess you could call the deload part of periodization. So maybe it's this very loosely periodized or has elements of periodization. But you certainly don't need to have a a highly structured periodized plan. You just need to manage stress and encourage overload. Right.
0: Um, And actually, it's funny because... um, I've, I've seen uh, uh, some videos of yours earlier on when you were talking about sort of a, a linear uh, intensification over a couple of weeks. So, for example, you would do like three by eight and then three by six the next week with a little bit higher load and then uh, three by four and then take a deload and then repeat the three by eight with a bit higher weight. What I was thinking about recently is like, is it that period, periodization model that allowed you to progress in weight, or is it just the fact that you waited four weeks to put on five pounds on your lifts because now you're advanced and you need to wait for that
1: long? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, a big part of um, like when I write about progression in the muscle and the strength pyramids, and when I talk about it, a huge portion of that is just matching up the time scale you can expect to progress. Uh, Either load or reps, uh, you know, with 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 with, over time, with the experience level of the um, the person training. So you know, when I when I set up the novice progression, it's very simple. Next week, when you repeat the same workout, go heavier, Uh, or if it's an isolation movement, add reps. And then like, like you, the one you described is kind of what I typically match up with intermediates and that uh, progression r- results in every, if you take a fourth week deload, it results in every fifth week, you're, you're, you're doing the same reps, uh, and, uh, and the same number of sets as you did four weeks ago with a heavier load. And if, you know, if you don't need the deload, then it happens every four, four weeks. So yeah, it's just matching up the timescale more appropriately. And then again, when I, when I set up some of the advanced progression uh, models in, in the book, uh, we're, we're doing that with a accumulation block of four weeks and an intensification block. So it's more like every you know, six to 12 weeks, you're trying to, to, to move the needle in some kind of quantitative way. So I think, yeah, it's the combination of um, making sure that the overload is sufficient and then also understanding that that overload might not produce a quantifiable adaptation in the weight room uh, until you've had enough time pass. The closer and closer you get to your, you know, quote-unquote, genetic ceiling. Yeah, and and that kind of dovetails into
0: uh, although may, maybe I want to skip some of these because otherwise we will, we will never get to our actual topic. But uh, it kind of dovetails into um, okay. strength gains and hypertrophy. So you were one of those uh, guys in the industry talking about how you need to get stronger if you want to get bigger, and now kind of the equation as far as i understand your stance uh, kind of flipped to well probably um if you if you're going to get bigger then you should probably see yourself getting stronger almost as a benchmark to see whether you've actually gotten bigger so
1: um yeah yeah you said that well Abel. and you know it's funny i i made this a very very short part of that article like i think it's a sentence for what my prior belief was and what my current one is um and in many ways, in practice, if you're if you're smart, and I wasn't always, <laughs> um, it it doesn't change what you do. So it may see, some people might read it and be like, that's a really minor distinction. I don't even really get what he's getting at. But I stated my prior belief as you know, getting stronger in a variety of movements across a variety of repetition ranges causes hypertrophy. And then my current belief, my updated one, I, I, I stated it as increased strength, especially when quantified using a low skill isolation movement and which persists over longer time periods indicates hypertrophy has likely occurred. So in the end, in practice, it doesn't change a whole lot in that you're probably, you're, you're trying to either push heavier loads uh, or add reps with the same loads uh, in the context of a program that, that hasn't shifted too much. Um, and... You know, that, that, that's what I did before and how I set things up for my clients. But I think um, it's easy if, to, to make errors when you plateau. If you think that getting stronger is causing hypertrophy rather than it being the indication of hypertrophy occurring over time. Then you can do some things like, well, hey, you know, these weightlifters and powerlifters, they seem to be getting stronger more consistently than I do. Maybe I need to be doing, uh, you know, maximum effort days and, and doing some, you know, explosive speed work or something like that. Like you might start reading specific uh, program and, and theory around pure uh, strength and power improvement, and um, and I think then you can get actually further away from from the way you're trying to get stronger, right? Uh, we know that hypertrophy, you know, muscle size is one of many components. And I wouldn't even say uh, an advanced lifter, it's the dominant component in all cases for uh, for increasing strength. And we know that if we, we do increase cross-sectional area enough and we, you know, maintain the same rough movements that we have our skill levels with, that that should result in us being stronger, that should be uh, contributing to our strength. And we should see that outcome occur in the weight room. Um, so it's, it's a matter of, of understanding what comes first. And if we understand that hypertrophy comes first and causes strength, that'll prevent us from making those errors like all of a sudden, you know, training with a lower volume, high intensity uh, approach, seeing ourselves get stronger, but then wondering why we don't necessarily look better or why our measurements haven't increased, et cetera, Uh, which is something I actually did around 2010, 2011. I got very, very kind of hooked and focused on the powerlifting thing. And I, I figured, you know, like, oh, well, if if I'm getting stronger, that means I must be getting bigger. And then, as I got more exposed to the research, and I found just how often uh, there is a disassociation between strength and hypertrophy, um, that only when you keep things relatively constant uh, and and you see yourself getting stronger, can, is that indicative and as a result of hypertrophy that strength increase uh, is is it a useful and reliable uh, metric rather than cause. Right. Yeah. And
0: um yeah, damn it. Like like this is the downside of not being like a Joe Rogan who can like keep people in here for like three hours because like even on this one, we could just go off uh, and talk about this because it's super interesting. But I actually want to I want to touch on one of the next things, which was about low carb diets. and 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 I guess to slowly transition towards our main topic. I almost want to approach this from a more kind of philosophical perspective because what, what I've what i seen is that it almost became like the politically correct thing in the industry to do to attack people who follow diets which we could uh, consider fads like it could be a low carb diet or a keto diet or something. And um, mm-hmm. how, how do you view this uh, trend your, yourself and how do you think someone who is flirting with the idea of jumping into something maybe more extreme than what would be necessary given their goals, how do you think these people should be approached um, in terms of, uh, yeah, like what what
1: should be our messaging towards these people? Abel, I really love the way you phrased that, how it became kind of politically correct to do that. and. You know, that's not without reason, you know, like in the, um, the quote unquote evidence based community or just well-meaning fitness professionals who've been around for a while. There's one thing we all know that's true is that you won't get anywhere without consistent hard work that is sustainable over time. Uh, and invariably, um, you know, there's either one of two things that happens kind of in the mainstream fitness scene. Either you get something that works, but is overly extreme and unsustainable. Uh, that, that people you see them do it and you you all you know how it's going to end as soon as you find out they're going to do it uh, you know well this will last at most six weeks you know um, or something that has just false promises you know ten minute abs or or the, or the some ridiculously low amount of time or, or small change that is you know overly hyped up that's going to make a large outcome difference um, so that that describes most fads um, and. It's it's a good thing for us to to, to kind of try to, to point out those problems and bring everyone back to look. There are no shortcuts, uh, and you need to be able to find this as a lifestyle change versus something that you're only coming into because you're you're not happy with yourself. Like there's deeper problems here, there's deeper solutions, and there's the whole uh, you know life change that you need to make if you really want to to see your body and your health become um, you know better. So I think it's understandable how we get there, but how we do it is also very important. Um, because I think we need to recognize that, that most people, and I think this is changing, but it's still is probably the dominant number of people come into nutrition um, by following some fat diet, um, you know, and and that that's probably also true in training. Um, but with nutrition, it's 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 tough because everyone eats, like not everyone trains, you know. Um, so to to get into the training world, you basically have to figure out, okay, what is someone else doing? And it's more likely that you'll find something that is decent. Uh, If you just start lifting weights and you follow people, they might be a little gimmicky and it might be a little unnecessary or too little or too much, you know, somewhere on the, the, the hit to, to, to Arnold spectrum. Uh, But anywhere in there is probably okay um, to start. But with the Nutrition thing, uh, it can be pretty wild, pretty out there, and pretty bad. And you can follow it for a while, and you can even get some results, but it can be at a cost. And I think um, the reason why it's this kind of politically correct, like auto assumption of, hey, uh, you know, if you're on a low carb diet, uh, I'm going to, you know, take you down or point out all the flaws with it, or you you have already this ammunition already loaded um, that you're ready to fire away with, especially you can see some of the engagements on Facebook. Um, from very evidence-based people, but they're they're discussing things in what I would describe as a very non-evidence-based way. Like I can't tell you how many times I've seen these debates where um, there's just as many memes, uh, you know, ad hominems, and uh, just off-the-cuff uh, condescending comments and dismissals uh, as there are actual study links. Because everyone's already decided that if uh, if you're on a low-carb diet, uh, that means you think uh, the calories in, calories out model is false. Uh, You believe that insulin causes everything. Uh, You think that sugar is the devil and you think obesity is caused by carbohydrates and you don't understand uh, that glucose is actually the fuel in the body. Um, And I've seen so many times, you know, people who have uh, legitimate points just kind of get swept under the rug. Uh, And it's not that I'm saying uh, low-carb diets are are the end-all be-all. But I think once something gets called out as a fat diet or Especially when there are gurus behind it who are making claims that are false, uh, the assumption then becomes that all things uh, related to it are incorrect, and that is becomes the straw man for everyone. So I've I've seen many many people who might have uh, very relevant things to say. You know, using low carb diets uh, in people who are insulin resistant, or using it as a, um, a specific uh, treatment to specific clinical concerns. Uh, using it in the case of, you know, um, perhaps elderly people or individuals with PCOS or, uh, you know, neurological problems or in the management of diabetes, all these things that have very robust lines of research and uh, and, and a rationale uh, for for further use for a ketogenic diet or low-carb diet, or just personal preference, uh, given that the data normally shows that there is no difference between the two versus one being better for fat loss, uh, and, and that being then straw manned, uh, as though the person were were claiming something uh, like a, a you know a Lustig or a Gary Taubes might claim, and I think um, I was a part of that for a while. And uh, I think in the service of trying to inform people about uh, you know a fad diet, we can't forget that we need to that, that the ultimate like razor that that we use to cut through all of that nonsense is is logic. Uh, and but we still have to be compassionate. These are people because everyone's going to get exposed to. Um, you know fitness and nutrition in typically gimmicky ways and you don't really convert them by you know crucifying them or someone they're following but rather you know having a discussion with them and what I like to do is ask them questions about hey do you see this as sustainable like what about this does or doesn't work um, what 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 conceptions do you currently have about what you can and can't do on this diet and if there are misconceptions maybe I can give you a little more freedom or a little more options or, or help you see ways where you can modify this for your life uh, so they become more competent with their own nutrition um, versus just kind of having a, a rule or, or or cult-like adherence to something. Um, and I think people dig their heels in a lot more if, if they're, you know, attacked or, or if they are made to feel stupid, especially publicly. And that probably keeps more people following something that is harmful than it does uh, convert others. You know, that's just my, my perspective on it.
0: Yeah, and I think another thing to keep in mind here is that we are living in a terrible food environment these days where we just have so many cues pushing us to over consume food and just not overeating on hyper palatable calorie dense foods is already some undertaking by itself and then people who take on a diet strategy, something mm-hmm. like, I don't know, a snake diet. I'll, I'll just pick something intentionally that's kind of ridiculous. So snake diet, I mean, first of all, how can you even come up with such a stupid name? <laughs> but you know, you eat every three days and drink salty water in the meantime and then eat some giant piece of fatty meat or I don't even know what the protocol is. But the point is that this is something that everybody's making fun of. And yeah, it is for a good reason. But at the same time, If a person is taking this on while being in this hyper-obesogenic environment, I mean, I think ahead of all things, we should give this person a lot of props. Like, someone like that just gave a massive testament for his desire to change and make the sacrifices necessary. Um, So instead of jumping on these people and making fun of them, I think, you know, just first let's celebrate the fact that we are in the same team. And then, like you said, in a compassionate way, like you said, just educate them about you know more reasonable, enjoyable ways of achieving the same goals thereafter, right? I totally agree. Yeah. Uh, cool. So uh, with that, let's uh, get into the actual topic that I wanted to discuss, which is that of um, macro tracking, calorie tracking, and just being really quantified and measured with your food intake. So. Um, I think just as all these fat diets and um, specialized protocols and whatever are getting bashed in a politically correct uh, or, you know, legitimized manner, I think uh, macro tracking kind of became the end-all be-all in the fitness industry with a good reason. I mean, we do know that energy balance matters. And if you want to quantify that, it will obviously help you to get results. But at the same time, I think, uh, we developed a tendency where anything else kind of got bashed in maybe an unfair, in an unfair manner. So, uh, how have your thinking changed, uh, along the lines of macro tracking and calorie tracking for, you know, people who are interested in improving their body composition? Yeah,
1: good question. And, um, yeah, without, I'll, I'll spare the history lesson, but I think it's worth saying that so many of these, uh, fad diets, uh, we're referring to in so many of these systems, um, would not recognize uh, energy balance or, or just wouldn't address it and would uh, paint the picture that the solution was to follow uh, some type of diet. And here are the problems with these foods or this food group or this macronutrient and, or this time of eating. Uh, we can think of many, many, many different diets with rules. And most of them, at least at work and that stick around and that do well, uh, at least commercially, uh, they result in someone eating less total food. They find some way to get you to restrict your calories. And I used to look at this as a problem. Like, hey, um, the truth is energy balance, which is the truth. Uh, that's how, you know, our, our bodies work. And uh, you can achieve energy balance without these restrictive rules on what food you can eat and when you can eat uh, just by controlling total calorie intake, which is true. Um, the problem is, is that the, is following some diet with rules uh Better in some ways than tracking everything and tracking your calories. Are there is there harm there? And I don't think I, I asked that question say uh, four years ago or more. And I definitely didn't didn't ask it when I first started, you know, as a personal trainer back more than a decade ago. And my first my first step was often to. Uh, teach someone about calories, teach someone about macronutrients, and get them to start weighing and tracking their food, and then uh, you know assessing either body composition or body weight or circumferences or something like that if their goal was fat loss, and then you know having them adjust their calorie intake in a quantitative manner. And I would say that when I got into research and when I got into coaching bodybuilders, um, these things were very much reinforced. Uh, you know, I'm a quantitative researcher in the realm of nutrition. Um, you know, we, we, we figured out what is the appropriate ranges for protein, carbohydrates, fat, uh, rates of weight gain, rates of weight loss. Uh, and we have all these metrics, which we have good data to back, that which show, you know, the best improvements in body composition. And among bodybuilders um, who have to, uh, you know, control their calorie intake to get into extremely lean levels, um, you know, it, it's even more quantified and to with with finer degree of precision, uh, because you start to deal with more and more metabolic adaptation. Uh, therefore you're dealing with uh, smaller and smaller changes that you need to, uh, you know, impose to get to the, the level of energy deficit you need to lose body fat. Um, and I think we looked up one day and, and we were all tracking, macros within, you know, one to five grams of a target. And you'd see things like people posting, yeah, well, what, what's your nutrition look like? Well, I'm eating 83 grams of fat, 207 grams of carbohydrate and uh, 212 grams of protein every day. And, um, you know, and not seeing anything wrong with that. Um, now, what I've come to realize is I've thought about this more deeply and read about it and seen the the downsides to this, uh, especially in the bodybuilding world where, People might go years with, 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 with tracking uh, or tracking on and off, but never having, um, you know, a healthy relationship with food uh, when they're not tracking. Uh, it's, it's made me think, you know, there's something wrong here. Like the same reason we have the obesity epidemic, uh, like you were saying, this easy access to hyper palatable foods, uh, having less structured meal times, eating on the go, eating mindlessly. Uh, all of a sudden, uh, we have a lot of people who are who are less healthy and who are much higher in body fat than they would like to be, uh, large in part because they're not in tune with their hunger and their society signals. They're no longer eating for physiological reasons. So it's a very different outcome uh, and, and, and unhealthy, you know, to be with obesity. But on the other side of it, that's the same thing that happens to bodybuilders. Um, you know, they have to ignore their satiety and hunger signals to get in great shape. And this sometimes results in uh, disordered eating after or even during the competition uh, where they experience periodic binge eating. And what I would describe as, as, as subclinical bulimia where uh, they are restricting calories and then not, unable to do it. And it, they overeat uh, in the transition period after their, their show. You know, when you hear someone say, oh, I blew my reverse. You know, that, that's something you'll like that phrase gets thrown around all the time in bodybuilding circles. And what that means is that I was trying to control my calorie intake post show and slowly build it up without getting, uh, you know, putting on a lot of body fat quickly. And I had a a binge blowout day and then I tried to go back to the reverse that prompted the next binge blowout day. And this eventually resulted in me in this up and down restrict, uh, binge cycle where I actually gained too much body fat too fast. And now I'm, I'm disappointed with myself. That's bulimia you know, make no mistakes about it. And, um, other parallels are there as well, where you might have a a bodybuilder in the off season who's, let's say a male and they're at 11 or 12% body fat, but they don't want to put a picture online or they don't really want to see themselves in the mirror. Despite looking better than 99.9% of everyone, um, they see themselves in comparison to how they were on stage and they, uh, they're, they're not happy. So this is very obvious in the bodybuilding scene. You know, obviously, uh, we can all look at that and go, that's a problem, um, and that's not healthy, and that, that's someone who, who needs help, you know, and I think some of us can even relate to it. I know I can, um, but the part of the problem, and not, not the entire problem, not even close to it, but part of the problem is that we are ignoring satiety or ignoring hunger, and we're using these external cues to dictate what we eat, and that means that we get less in tune with the natural signals that our body is sending us. So I think many of the same things that uh, would help someone who is with obesity of getting a a better understanding of their their body's true needs is something that would definitely help, uh, you know, competitors at certain stages. Uh, Obviously, you're not going to be able to listen to your hunger and listen to your satiety and get shredded because it'll only be telling you to eat. But once you transition to the off season and maybe it should be purposeful, we should start paying more and more attention to those internal cues, hunger and satiety. Uh, so that we can maybe not exacerbate some of those tendencies towards disordered eating. Um, So that's kind of the the preamble to all of it. Yeah, I think you brought up a couple of really cool points and just um,
0: topics of discussion here. But first, I'd like to track back for a second on something you mentioned here about how the recommendation to track macros and count calories for everybody has sort of became this default recommendation by many coaches and trainers. And I think personally that this is partially because over time just an overly optimistic and hyperbolic tone emerged in the marketing around macro tracking and flexible dieting, you know, where people only talking about how awesome it is that you can fit in ice cream and pizza into your macros and how much freedom you get and often fail to mention what that actually looks like in the real world and just how much precision and extreme moderation that will actually require in real life if you actually want to do that and you know some minor things like if you actually did fit in a lot of ice cream and things like that into your macros in the real world you would probably be hungry and you would not actually enjoy eating that way and then of course some of the psychological burden of always tracking which i heard very few people talk about uh so i think the messaging is just often very disingenuous in
1: here but i'd i'd love to hear what you think yes and i i think this is actually kind of the um the second wave the whole if it, if it fits your macros cuz this is uh, this is older you know like um, i remember it being pointed out that um, that weight watchers was one of the only successful like quote unquote diet plans which is basically this works off of the diabetic exchange list and and portion control and and calorie exchanges and you would come in uh, you weigh in, you get community support, uh, and then you would have points. Probably people are familiar with the, the Weight Watchers point system. That is just a very simplified version of, of tracking calories and, um, you know, encouraging exercise. You get points back and then having community support. And it is true that if you look at some of the, uh, I think there's a meta-analysis. I haven't looked at it in a long time, so if I'm misquoting my apologies, of different um, systematic weight loss plans or, or groups or diets And I think Weight Watchers is is typically the most successful. The numbers aren't great, but compared to the others, it's still pretty damn successful. Um, So this has been around for a while, the idea. And and like in Weight Watchers, like if you looked at the foods they would sell that were branded Weight Watchers, they'd have like, you know, brownies and nice foods and like these ready made meals. And they would just be small portion sizes Um, or sometimes, you know, cooked or, or prepared in ways that had lower sauces or basically were kind of, you know, shoestring budget for calories, but still getting to eat what you want in kind of the same way that now we see people talking about eating, like you said, cookies and ice cream to fit uh, your macros. Um, so it's not necessarily entirely new concept that you can basically eat whatever you want so long as you control calories. And I think there's there's a positive message there uh, and that, that most traditional nutrition uh, classes will teach you is that, you know, the uh, you shouldn't be restricted. Uh, you shouldn't have flexibility in your, your approach if you are trying to lose weight. And it's a matter of portion control. Like Portion control is, is not a new concept. It was around before uh, flexible dieting or quote-unquote flexible dieting and if it fits your macros. But I think this is just kind of the, the new age version of it that was kind of influenced by the bodybuilding community where it's even more tightly controlled than uh, you know the exchange list and just calories. But now we've got gram amounts of protein, carbs, and fat. Yeah, um,
0: something you mentioned here, which I want to pick up on, uh, about people forgetting to listen to their hunger and satiety signals when tracking macros. And um, what would you say to people who will come back at this and perhaps say, um, so what's the harm? Like, yeah, I don't even know how to eat based on hunger and satiety, but so what, it works for me. I mean, I'm lean, I'm fine with following the numbers for the rest of my life. So,
1: I mean, what's the harm, really? That's a great question. And there is actually a, um, and that, that's of course, you know, being the the nerd I am, I'm um, thinking about this and seeing some of these issues pop up among bodybuilders and others. Uh, now I want to go, right, well, so what is the research on this? And there's actually a fair amount. A lot of it's really quite new, which is interesting. So to, to talk about the specific harm, I think it started with, with reading an article uh, not too long ago uh, where... The, the relationship between flexible restraint and rigid restraint uh, was, was called into question. So back in the late 90s, there was a line of research by a guy named Westenhofer, um, and it's still going on, a really, really good line of research on looking at two different types of restraint. So this is what true flexible dieting comes down to, is that it is uh, a model of flexible restraint. It's not tracking macros. You could be doing flexible dieting with a meal plan with exchanges or weight watchers, et cetera. Um, Tracking macros can be extremely rigid. Uh, Flexible restraint is different from rigid restraint in that the understanding is that uh, there is some auto regulation to it to some degree. There's changes on a day-to-day basis or meal-to-meal basis. Uh, there aren't restrictions on foods. Uh, there is structure, but uh, there is modifications within it to pay heed to what happened before and what may, what might happen in the future. So it's kind of this structured, flexible planning approach. Uh, and 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 people who uh, have a a mindset of flexible restraint. Uh, the differentiating point between that and rigid restraint is not non-dichotomous thinking, or not thinking in black and white. Uh, meaning that uh, they don't see foods as good or bad. Um, they don't think they can only eat at certain times. A lot of the things that are preached in the "if it fits your macros" community, um, but they also wouldn't be like, "I have to hit 215 grams of carbs every day, and if I blow it, then I'm, you know, I, I, it, I might as well eat all the carbs." So that which can be very similar to a rigid diet plan. Um, So that is the the difference or the proposed difference between flexible and rigid restraint. However, in 2015, and then again in 2017, uh, there's been some analysis showing that individuals who have high levels of flexible restraint and rigid restraint actually share a lot of variance, um, statistically speaking, those two paradigms. And they're actually quite similar. And it's only when, in a recent study by uh, Lenardin et al, uh, I think it's Lenardin and Mitchell. uh, Lenardin and Mitchell, 2017, did they say, hey, it's only when you exclude the shared variance, which is a lot, I think it's like 50-something percent between rigid and flexible restraint, is flexible restraint either neutral or positive. Um, and, And this is something that we see in the, uh, the community. Like it's very easy for someone to be following, you know, if it fits your macros and come from this community that supposedly preaches, you know, flexibility, but have very, very rigid, uh, concepts around food. Like they won't go out to eat if they don't control it, they won't do it. Uh, you know, they freak out if, if they, the, the, the nutrition labels for the restaurant, uh, aren't listed, you know, like, Oh my God, I, I thought this restaurant had the macros. I don't know what to do. Like if that happens, you're, that's not flexible restraint. That's rigid. Um, and I think it's very easy for people to slip in and out of that. So it may be that there, there isn't harm for an individual. Uh, for example, if you understand that, hey, that's okay. I, I can really estimate the calories here or I can just order something that is, uh, you know, salad and meat. But if, you know, like if what ends up happening is you go, oh, I can't, I, I, I don't know what the macros are. I'm freaking out. I'm, I'm, I'm panicking here. Screw it. I'm just going to get a pizza. That's, that might as well be rigid restraint. So the, whether there's harm is definitely determined on an individual basis, but I think while well, that's something to consider for the individual dieter, for someone like me who is promoting information uh, and dealing with a large breadth of, of followers who might uh, follow my advice or if I'm writing a book or if I'm working with you know, 30 clients you know, when I first started thinking about this stuff, I need to think about um, what is the risk uh of, of of any given population and uh, you know there's there's a fair amount of research on this that is concerning let's put it that way so for example there's a study also came out last year uh by Levinson and colleagues uh where they interviewed um i think a couple hundred um yeah no it was 100 people it's like 105 people who were diagnosed with an eating disorder and 3 fourths of them use my fitness pal and of those three fourths, 73% of them perceived using MyFitnessPal and tracking their their nutrition as contributing to their eating disorder. Now, I'm not saying it's causative. This is this is correlational research, right? Uh, this is cross-sectional. We don't we don't we don't know causation. Um, and it's very likely that people with an eating disorder are getting MyFitnessPal uh, rather than people without an eating disorder getting MyFitnessPal and then getting an eating disorder because of it. But the fact that you know. A very large percentage of the people who have an eating disorder and use MyFitnessPal feel that it's contributing or that can be a triggering factor for their, for their eating disorder. I think is something we need to really think about. Um, and then on the other aspect of, of tracking, you know, there's kind of this typically, at least in the bodybuilding community, where the goal is to either lose fat or gain muscle. We're trying to see this, our scale weight change. Um, there's this also the self-weighing that occurs. And there are positives of self-weighing. There's data showing that it results in more maintenance of weight loss and more mindfulness around eating. But there's also negatives. And this line of research is actually much more robust. And we do have causative data that goes all the way back more than uh, 20 years ago. Back in 1997, uh, Ogden uh, and colleagues compared two groups, one that weighed in at the start and the end just twice, pre and post of a two-week period, uh, to another group uh, that weighed in every day for a two-week period. Uh, and they saw that the, the group that weighed in every day uh, had lower levels of, of happiness and higher levels of neuroticism and stress. Uh, and those individuals who either gained weight or didn't lose weight had higher levels of body dissatisfaction. Uh, so it became this like emotional barometer uh, and and the day could be dictated by whether or not you, you lost weight or not. And uh, it just caused a lot of stress for these people. And many competitors and many people who are, who are interested in body recomposition are regularly weighing themselves on my fitness pal tracking the macros. And I think there is potential harm there. I'm not saying there's going to be harm for every single person, but we need to be aware of that. And it may not be worth the benefits. So it's basically, we have to ask ourselves, what is the cost of accuracy, precision and, and consistency? And then, uh, is there a way that we can still achieve our goals, uh, while using some of our own natural, Monitoring and adjustment systems, like paying attention to hunger and satiety, uh, maybe using those as as ways of adjusting uh, energy intake, and then looking at the scale less frequently to see if we are, uh, you know, gaining at an appropriate rate or or, or or what have you. I think I think there's a middle ground to be had that that might be less risky on average.
0: Yeah, and I'm really glad that you finished on this last point because, you know, like you, I have not tracked my macros for a long time, and it's one thing that i made the best progress in my life in the gym and body composition wise ever since i had not tracked and i know that you have successfully bulked without tracking and you also did some mini cuts without tracking and i just like to take a few minutes to uh, respond to those people who are are now probably going to say that well yeah sure you can be healthy and happy if you don't track macros but if you want to have some abs if you want to make good gains then it's just not going to happen without tracking macros so Mm -hmm. let's let's talk about this um like just how far can you push your body composition and, uh, you know, athletic pursuits without tracking macros? Yeah,
1: great question. I think really it just comes down to um, – so So first we have to just acknowledge that uh, a finely tuned, aware person of their, their own hunger and satiety signals is probably not going to gain weight unless they really just choose a lot of hyper palatable foods uh, that are, you know, low in actual – Uh, Mass or or the amount of like space they take up. So your mechanical satiety would be low while you're taking in a lot of calories. That's like the only way if you actually pay attention to hunger and satiety is if you only choose very, very calorie dense foods, will you be uh, gaining a lot of weight and being overweight on average unless you just uh, tend to have a genetic profile that results in carrying a little more body fat than average. Um, But if you have um, adopted a, a quote unquote fitness lifestyle to where you're active, uh, you're, you're performing resistance training, and your nutritional habits are largely influenced by doing by, by consuming like a higher protein, higher fiber, higher fruit and vegetable diet. Um, you can actually take things pretty far. And where the limit is, is based on at what point can you no longer trust your satiety and hunger signals, or at what point do you need to reach a quantitative goal such that qualitative values might do you a disservice. So, for example, If you were a powerlifter and uh, you hover in a natural state three to four kilos over your weight class limit, and you know that four weeks out, you need to do a mini cut and then do some minor water manipulation to safely ensure uh, that you make your weight class and that you can compete just as strong as you were normally in your weight class, that means you, you probably will need to push yourself to the point where you are hungry and you wouldn't be satisfied at every meal. And that's totally fine. And you probably also should weigh yourself to make sure that you actually meet that weight class cutoff. So for that four-week period, you know, you're stepping on the scale a few times per week. You're getting on My, My Pal. you're tracking. And then between competitions, you shift back towards your normal habits. I think there's nothing wrong with that. And I think it would probably be uh, risky and probably more stressful to a, uh, you know, a powerlifter to try to not step on the scale and just hope they made their weight class. Um, so that, that isn't advised. Uh, Another example would be if you were a fitness model uh, or a physique competitor and the level of leanness required for you to either, you know, show up at the shoot or get on stage and be successful is something that will result in extreme hunger and, uh, you know, diminished signals of satiety. Well, obviously you can't listen to your satiety and hunger signals. But outside of that, you actually have a ton of options. Um, You know, you... You uh, you mentioned that I've I haven't been tracking macros for a while and that's true I haven't tracked macros since 2012 and I've uh, competed in uh, powerlifting and I've just stayed in basically the weight class where I hover around uh, I have now this year done two different mini cuts uh, and I've actually gotten reasonably lean um, and I've also gone through a post you know PhD data collection uh, gaining phase where I. I went up from about 93 to 100 kilos over the course of about just under a year and a half. Um, And I did all of those things without tracking. And I did it by focusing on uh, how hungry or how full I felt uh, and using that as a a barometer and an auto-regulation tool for how much total calories I ate with some tracking going on. Um, And what I mean by some tracking is I never actually busted out my fitness pal. But in my head, I would have a running tally of how much protein I was eating. And then I would basically just rely on the habits I've developed since 2004 when I started lifting and adopting a bodybuilding lifestyle and just tracking the few things that uh, haven't stuck from that habit kind of based lifestyle change. Like, for example, I need to make sure that I have uh, enough fruit in my diet and we need to make sure that we cook enough meals at home to get enough vegetables. Um um and then you know just keeping a running tally of protein in my head and also getting enough fluids so something like we cook at home four times per week and at a minimum uh for dinner and then i also every day typically have a protein or Greek yogurt shake with two to three pieces of fruit Um, and that gets me my fluid intake my fruits my vegetables and also contributes towards my protein intake for the day so those things i do and i just make sure they occur but the portion sizes at the meals, when I sit down, like you said, uh, or when you know we go out to eat, or when I have lunch or whatever, are dictated by uh, hunger and satiety. And if I'm going through a mini cut. I simply just make different decisions and I'm I stay a little more hungry all the time or a little less full and when I'm trying to gain weight I make sure that I'm eating much more uh, calorie-dense foods I'm including more non quote-unquote bodybuilding lifestyle foods we eat out more frequently I don't make as much of an effort to get in fruits and vegetables which fill me up Um, so I make these uh, these qualitative changes to my diet um, and I pay attention to the level of satiety and hunger that I have to achieve my goals Now, when I get on stage next year, because I'm going to be starting a diet in about a month, I'm definitely going to, either from the very start or at a certain point, um, start tracking macros and being more precise. Because uh, at a certain point, it doesn't doesn't serve you to pay attention to hunger and satiety. In fact, you probably shouldn't. You probably want to just get to a place of acceptance. Like, I'm going to be hungry, but that's not my focus. I've got these numbers, and they're going to restart tomorrow. And, And that's when... I think you will be served by something like if it fits your macros. Uh, and, and you probably should do that because, uh, you know, getting to the point of having, you know, striated glutes is, is certainly not going to happen uh, in most for, for 99% of people uh, with, with just kind of going by feel. Uh, and it would probably be better to, to be a little more quantified. Yeah, I I think that's just uh, brilliantly said. And uh, I believe you
0: put out a blog post maybe uh, a year ago, I think around the episode with Mike Israel that we did on the bulking debate, you know, just to plug that episode where you made a case for an auto-regulated gaining phase and how eating based on hunger and satiety signals and just letting your calories go up and down and fluctuate across time because you're eating based on hunger and satiety signals can be better almost than putting yourself in a 300-calorie surplus and eating, say, 3,500 calories, regardless of whether you were sitting on your ass all day or you were running up and down and training hard, because your surplus over time will be more accurate given your given your needs. So um, do you want to touch on this a little, or I covered everything with the question?
1: <laughs> yeah, I think you actually covered that pretty well with your question. And um, But yeah, I wrote that article um, because I had looked back and I went, man, this this bulking phase was was pretty successful, and I haven't had an intentional quote-unquote bulking phase since, man, 2010, I think, at that point, because it had just not been successful. Um, and I, I had gaining phases, obviously, but intentionally trying to gain, you know, a substantial amount of weight, you know, more than a pound a month on average um, at, at my stage of the game, and having it work well and not having have tracked, um, I think, flew in the face of my own preconceived notions of, of what is optimal. So I, uh, yeah, definitely. I think you summed it up well, though, that um, we have greater levels of hunger when we burn more calories. And we have greater levels of satiety when we burn less so that we're, we're, we're regulating our energy system. And um, that, that is the natural state to be in when you are uh, paying attention to and eating for physiological reasons. So using those signals that your body gives you is can be a good idea, you know, and it will probably be more accurate than your guesses at whether or not you burn more or less calories in a given day. Um, And it is a free built-in barometer that we all have as humans. So why not use it? Um, Although that is easier said than done. The whole reason we have an obesity epidemic is at least in part uh, because we have become very disassociated with uh, physiological reasons for eating, uh, you know, and this is unrelated to fitness. You might have been told as a kid that you have to finish your plate before you can have dessert. Uh, You might have been told, uh, you know, as a kid that you have to eat your entire, you know, lunch or lunch bag when you go to work or when you you go to school. Um, You might have been in the military like I was and you have, you know, five seconds to eat your entire breakfast. For the entire basic training period, and now all of a sudden you find yourself always eating quickly and and your hunger signals are always delayed a little bit, or your satiety signals I should say. Um, You might be someone who goes to a restaurant and feels like, you know, I paid $30 for this meal, of course I'm going to eat it all, uh, versus, you know, leaving whatever's left. Um, You might be someone who has to eat on the go, and you're driving, and you can't even think about the fact that you're eating, uh, and it's just a way to get it in because you know you're supposed to eat. All these things that we have in modern society uh, encourage us to not pay attention to these signals. It's not just you know tracking macros like we do in the the weird little fitness community we're a part of. Um, so I think getting re- getting in touch again with those natural signals can be a very important lesson um, and just an important life skill really uh, that can actually serve a uh, an athlete um, because there's data showing that the more active you are, the more finely tuned your hunger and satiety signals are. It's actually the sedentary people who have a disassociation between energy intake and satiation. There's a good amount of data to suggest that, um, you know, athletes and, you know, like laborers and people who have a very high energy expenditure have a more finely tuned satiety response to meals. Um, and, 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 and they also have appropriate energy intakes as well. So I think this is something that is actually fits nicely with an athletic, um, you know, lifestyle. Yeah. And, uh, and we'll start wrapping up
0: shortly, I promise. But uh, you just keep bringing up such valuable points that I just need to reflect on them. I think when people bring up the obesity epidemic and the obesity statistics uh, to make the point of why eating without macro tracking is just a recipe for failure, I think... I think that these people just don't realize how far they have come by investing into a fundamentally healthy fitness-type lifestyle and resistance training and eating a high-protein diet and a nutrient-dense diet and just how big of a gap is there uh, separating them from the people who unfortunately, you know, represent the obesity epidemic. And I think just, you know, logically, if you pause for a second, I mean, when someone is eating... 6,000 calories a day of hyper palatable foods. I mean, is it really the lack of macro tracking that is the problem here, you know? Or maybe it's just a complete lack of control over their food environment and some serious psychological considerations. Uh, So, you know, that's one point. And the other point is um, I want to reiterate what you just said, that perhaps even for a contest prep, which I think is going to blow many people's minds, perhaps it can be a viable strategy to sort of eat ad libitum and without tracking macros down to a point where you can still manage it. So maybe at the point where you're maybe 9 10% body fat or so. And that, at that point, at which point your hunger signals might be a bit too strong for you to eat without tracking and still be in a negative energy balance, then transition over to tracking
1: macros for the final phase of the contest prep. You made so you made a few good points there, man. So, um, yeah, I think one thing I want to say is, yeah, it's very true that some people might be listening to this and going, well, the, the goals I have, uh, like, if I just listen to Hunger and Satiety, I wouldn't reach them. Now, unless you're a competitor or a fitness model, I would challenge you right now to potentially change those goals uh, because that's not sustainable for most people. I can't tell you how many times I've consulted with people who are trying to get lean again for the 40th time sometimes trying different approaches, um, being more rigid and, and trying to live with a level of restraint uh, that is inappropriate. And that's not healthy. Like that's not a fitness lifestyle to be in a state that's probably, you know, relative energy deficiency. That, that's, that's, that's a syndrome, you know, like that, that's... That's potentially harmful living with with a level of metabolic adaptation you know having irregular menstrual cycles etc you know so i think the way i often tell people you know how, how sustainable was a cut was once you have a few weeks after the cut is over if it's a you know non-competitive cut that's why i say weeks not months and you brought your calories back up uh and you're you're eating a little more normally uh, if you're still hungry it's probably too lean it's probably not sustainable And that's how I I gauge the success of like a recovery diet for competitors or a uh, a shortcut for non-competitors, et cetera. So I think that that's the first thing is a lot of people might need to accept the fact uh, that the way they want to look is not necessarily that sustainable. However, like you just pointed out. Um, you know, and a good example of this is um, I, I did a local seminar here when Menno Henselmans was traveling. We spoke at Get Strength here in Auckland and he shared how he used a ad libitum, which just means eating as much as you want, diet to, to, for the maybe the first half of his contest prep where he would just increase the, the volume of um, low-calorie foods that were uh, very filling. So he had a, a higher fruit and vegetable intake, higher fiber intake, higher protein intake, and he had all of these habits that he would, he would lean on that would uh, result in less total calorie consumption without actually tracking, and without ever stopping himself and restraining himself. And uh, when look when you look at the pictures, I would say he got exa- exactly to where you were you were saying, somewhere between nine to eleven percent for a male, and you know the equivalent for that for a female is is probably in the high teens uh, as far as body fat percentage. And I think that is very reasonable, uh, and that may be sustainable for many too. Um, and uh, but not all. I think some people are going to find that spot five or six percent body fat higher some might be even be a little bit lower uh those, those blessed few but <laughs> um i think it's there's it nothing wrong with taking a more qualitative and quote-unquote intuitive approach uh to a point where you start to notice man i'm kind of always hungry i like i'm looking at my broccoli and i want to eat even more broccoli but i'm actually uncomfortable like you know once you start to get these weird confusing signals and you become aware that um you're kind of always food focused at that point Uh, You you probably should shift away from that that approach, but it's definitely doable. And I've seen people uh, get pretty damn lean, Um, perhaps not stage lean, uh, but a good a good chunk of the way there uh, without actually tracking. Yeah,
0: uh, excellent. And, you know, I'm really, really glad uh, you say this because I've been talking about these things on the podcast for a while, but it's. Very different for many people to hear it from me and hearing it from someone like you who has the experience as a competitor, as a coach, and also the scientific uh, credibility as a researcher. And I I just think that you helped more people with this than you would realize. Um, So my final question to you, Eric, is... You know, I put out a post not long ago about the things that have changed in my life ever since I stopped tracking macros and some of the things I mentioned in this interview as well. But I'd be curious if you reflect back on the times in which you were tracking macros and you compare it with the times and the several years in which you weren't, what would be some of the things and some of the big changes in your life
1: that occurred uh, during these periods? I think the big one is just having less guilt and resentment. Um, I think I was able to work around it. A lot of people wouldn't even know that I was tracking macros and I had a lot of, I think probably positive behaviors that are good lessons for when you do have to track. Like I would typically, I would eat eat as much as I wanted in some of my earlier meals in the day and then just write down the weight and what the foods were probably with some awareness of, of how far I could or couldn't take it. And then the only meal that I would like really plan out was my last meal. Uh, so that I would you know, eat whatever's left kind of thing. Um, so I'd kind of auto regulate to a point, And then at the end of the day, I would, I would, uh, you know, f- close that, that line a little more, uh, accurately. Uh, but when I was referring to the guilt and resentment, um, if my, my wife wanted to go out to eat or a friend called us up or wanted to hang out or there was a holiday or something like that, um, I could most of the time make it work and I would estimate and and do that. But there were times like if it had been a few days in a row and then all of a sudden, then a friend comes and calls me and I'm going, man, like my, my weekly calories are going to be too high or this is going to force me to just have a, you know, like mostly protein tomorrow or protein before bed or something like that. I would find myself feeling resentment. And like when, when a a friend calls you out of the blue and wants to hang out and take you out for a meal, the last thing you, you want to feel is resentment. That's a good thing. Right. Um, and, uh, or, or like thinking I want to go see a movie or, or, or do a movie and dinner with my wife, but um, deciding not to do it because I feel like I haven't been in enough control on my diet. I think that made me realize like that's not good. You know, like I, I should be able to just go out to eat at a meal uh, with my wife because I want to have a date night with her and then just you know, eat a little bit less or, or order less or, you know, like just make a different decision without necessarily having to quantify it or feeling nervous if I couldn't. So I think that is really where it stood out in my life was that even though I had adopted all of these behaviors to where sometimes I'd look at weekly caloric intake, <clears throat> excuse me, or um, I would have high and low days, or I'd even borrow like a lot of the strategies I've written about, like shifting from macros to protein, to calories, to just calories, um, or even, you know, doing 20% borrowing, uh, or allowing, you know, 15% of calories from alcohol. Like I had all these systems, and I would use them, um, but they still required some thought, and they didn't come at a zero emotional cost. Even if it was a lot lower than I was more when back in the day when I was more rigid with my, my my tracking. So being able just to to let go of all of that um, and just uh, in auto regulate a bit more uh, and learn that skill, I think has been very Uh, Positive for me and has resulted in a much net better life and it hasn't cost me. I don't think anything in terms of my um, My quote-unquote gains, you know before I left for New Zealand My best bench was was lower than it is now my best squat was was lower than it was at its peak Um, my physique's better now and um, Mini cuts are easier now believe it or not without tracking Um, And just in general I have found that I can be more productive and uh it's just one less thing I have to focus on. Um with all that said, uh when it does come time to track again, I have a feeling it'll be kinda like a bit of a bumpy road and having to relearn a skill. Um and so I think there's probably something to be said for when you do know that you will have to track if you have a goal that doesn't line align with uh, paying attention to your satiety and hunger, you probably wanna start a little early, like a few weeks out to kinda like relearn and reacquaint yourself. Like I probably am used to a, a version of MyFitnessPal that's, that's multiple years old. So, you know, I probably used it before Under Armour bought it. So it, it'll be good to, to kind of relearn that skill again. Right. Awesome. And, uh, you know, listening
0: to this, uh, on the one hand, I needed to cringe. And on the other hand, it just made me feel warm and fuzzy on the inside because I had the exact same experience about the guilt and the resentment and almost feeling angry when a friend reached out to grab some beer and a pizza and I think these are the things that so many people experience and yet so many of them will ever talk about it because it's not cool it's not sexy to talk about this and I think many feel embarrassed about these things and probably many are also in denial when they are going through this in the moment and I think hearing someone like you talk about this honestly will give a wake-up call to many people and You know, I just hope that we gave a nice pitch to the listeners to try this auto-regulated eating-a-go because it's just such a useful skill to have in your arsenal. But like we touched on here, there are just major lifestyle and psychological benefits to mention here. So Eric, this has been an absolute honor and I could talk to you for hours about this, but um, I hope that one day we'll have the chance to chat about this uh, in person, finally. So uh, my final, final question is how much volume should we do? Just kidding. (laughs) No, I appreciate it, man. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. And please just tell people where they can um, find out about
1: your work, uh, your resources, and uh, anything that you would want them to check out. For sure. So most relevant to this discussion is you probably want to go to muscleandstrengthpyramids.com, the second edition of my books, which actually go into this a lot more and interweave these concepts throughout all the levels. Um, are coming out. Uh, this this is the books I've co-written with Andrea Valdez and uh, Andy Morgan are going to be launching before Christmas. So check that out probably uh, mid to late December. Um and if you're a competitor and you're interested in finding anything about the sport, either physique or strength sport, check us out at 3dmusclejourney.com. That's the number three, the letter D, then musclejourney.com. Those are the two places where you can find most of our content and bridges to other things. If you're a big-time nerd and you want to learn more about the – coming up science of every month in strength and physique sport, you want to check out uh, strongerbyscience.com mass. That's my research review with uh, Mike Zerdos and Greg Knuckles. Uh, and we've got a cool sale for uh, Cyber Monday and Black Friday, where we're giving a large percentage of our profits away to charity. So now would be a good time to sign up for that. Uh, and then if you want more day-to-day kind of content, you can follow me at Helms3DMJ on Instagram. Wonderful. And it's Wednesday. Is tomorrow
0: 3DMJ podcast coming out or you're still on your podcast, deload with the team? Podcast is coming out very soon. We're about to start a new season. Yay. Awesome. I'll be missing you guys. Awesome. Uh, Dr. Helms, thank you so much. It was an absolute pleasure. Hey, well, as always,
1: privilege and a pleasure to come on. Thank you.
0: Hi guys, I hope you enjoyed this episode and liked what you heard. And if you did, then I think you'd definitely love our SSD training and nutritional course that we recently put out with Birgia Fuggerly. This program not only contains a 12 week phasic training program that you can use to time efficiently and safely build the best body you can, but also gives you four plus hours of video lectures about managing your nutrition and lifestyle to not only look good, but feel and perform optimally. And besides this, you will also be getting some really awesome bonuses like Burger Fagerly's MyoReps Reps and Zero Carb ebook. So if this sounds interesting to you, then go ahead and check out sustainableselfdevelopment.com. And of course, to not miss out on future episodes like this, subscribe to the podcast and you'll be up to date on everything we'll be putting out. So thank you for hanging around up until now and see you next time.